0: Pete, yes. this is Joe Smith calling. Joe who? Joe Smith, I'm head of capital EMI Records. Yes. Uh, but I think you have been contacted through Harold or or just yourself about a book I'm doing in which I've done about 220 interviews in oral history of the music business. And, <laughs> and I've been told that uh, at some point I could get about 20 minutes on the phone with you. And if this is not a good time, I'd like That's to schedule. Is it a good time right now? Yeah. Uh, I'll, I'll tell you what recorder here attached to the phone, and if it's okay, if we can just talk. Sure. Uh, has it, how difficult has it been to to carry this mantle of uh, the world's most respected folk singer, <laughs> the tuning fork, the, do you get sick of all that? Oh,
1: uh, I can tell it's phony because every few years they try and get hang a new label. Uh, once called uh, the High Priest of Folk Music and then the Dean of Folk Music uh, and uh, all you can do is laugh at it. Now I'm known as an elderly folk singer. <laughs> That's the most honest of the lot.
0: When you when you get out there and, and face those audiences, is there, uh, is there an extra weight you carry because of, of this reputation?
1: Uh, no, I, as soon as I start picking a banjo I can forget about all that foolishness.
0: And, and has did it ever at one point get to you and say, "Wow, I really am pretty good stuff?"
1: Uh, no, I hope not. I know that I can pick a banjo. I know I can't sing much. I know I can get an audience singing with me better than most people because I've kind of had to uh, perhaps to cover up my own uh, failings but if the audience gets singing well, they're not listening to me anyway. So I've done I do this more and more.
0: Back early on, there's there's a period when when you were traveling with uh, with Lead Belly, with uh, with Woody and, and some others. That uh, other than an occasional story, an occasional book is, is almost a dark ages period for somebody who cover the pop music scene. Are there any impressions of that period for you in, I do in music? I'd say that
1: for people who cover the pop music scene, they should occasionally stop to realize there's some billions of people, not millions, not thousands but millions of people who, uh, they would think of it as in the dark ages. Uh, they, uh, get along, often they have more music in their lives than, than we do. Because they make music, they don't listen to it.
0: What, what are some recollections of, of what Woody Guthrie was out there at that point? Was he a guy appreciated in his own time? Did you? Oh, yeah.
1: he, he, uh, he was blacklisted from the air. The composer of This Land Is Your Land couldn't get a job on radio. They didn't have TV in those days. Uh, but it didn't it didn't bother him one little bit. He uh, could sing for people that liked him, uh, whether at the local bar, or at a friend's house, or an occasional union meeting, or a peace rally.
0: Any any particular recollections of? of uh, a series of of appearances or an appearance that uh, was electrifying that you can recall? Oh,
1: sure. There's lots yeah. of them. One of them was when Woody and Lee Hayes and Mill Lampell and I, calling ourselves the Almanac Singers, walked down the aisle. I, uh, there were about a thousand longshoremen there. It was a meeting of the Longshoremen's Union. And some of them turned around and "What's the heck's a bunch of hillbilly singers coming in? we got work to do. But uh, Harry Bridges, the head of the union, introduced us as some union singers. And would they please listen to us? And when we sang a couple of our uh, ballads uh, and songs like, oh, you can't scare me, I'm sticking to the union, they were cheering and and up in their feet. When we walked back down that aisle, they were clapping Woody on the back so hard they nearly knocked him over. Uh, I don't think I'll ever forget that. Did I also remember times we were just having fun when Sonny Terry and Brownie McGee uh, came up from the deep south and lived with us for a short while until they got their own bearings in New York. We were singing Saints Go Marching In at about 1 o'clock in the morning, <laughs> and a bottle crashed against the wall. <laughs> Some neighbor couldn't get with, wanted to sleep and didn't care what the music was, wanted <laughs> to sleep. <laughs>
0: Well, did Woody take himself seriously?
1: He did it in the same sense that Charlie Chaplin did. Uh, Woody was always ready with a grin and a joke. He loved to tell jokes, and, uh, and when he heard a good new one, he'd, he'd uh, uh, start embellishing it and, and telling it uh, everywhere he went. So he wasn't what you think of as a, a, a down-in-the-mouth character at all. Uh, He always had a kind of a wry, quizzical grin on his face. But he knew that uh, the reason he was a musician was not just to distract people from their troubles, but help try and uh, help people understand their troubles. And at his best, he helped inspire people to do something about their troubles.
0: What about Love Belly? Was that another kind of personality?
1: Well, they got along very well. As a matter of fact, there's a guy now thinking of doing a book or a movie about Lead Belly as seen through Woody's eyes, because uh, Woody really appreciated this man. He was so strong and, and such a great entertainer and artist. Uh, he was past his prime in a sense. He was in his fifties when we knew him, but he was still just absolutely magnificent. You can only think of what he might have been uh, at a younger age
0: and and you were uh, you were a young man yourself at that time
1: I was, I was about seven years younger than woody yeah i was very proud that he put up with my new england ways he he couldn't quite understand me <laughs> but uh we got along well he liked my banjo
0: then uh you you're, you're real uh, experience with commercial success. What, what are your recollections of forming the Weavers, and, and, and what, was that, what did that group represent?
1: Uh, we never expected or intended to be a commercial success. Uh, we hoped to uh, sing for peace and, and civil rights, and uh, like the Almanac singers, figured to our life would be not involved with the popular music business one little bit. At least not in the near future. Maybe decades away. Instead, what went wrong? What went wrong? <laughs> instead, we were about to break up and disband because we couldn't make a living. We couldn't even get five dollars here or ten dollars there. Uh, the Cold War had closed in, and and uh, organizations were folding, and leaders were in jail, and and. Uh, even the unions had uh, kicked out all the left-wing unions. Harry Bridges was one of the few unions that survived the Cold War. Well, we're about to split up, and as a last resort, we got a job. Where was this? you a great place. The Village Vanguard. Ah. I had once worked there for 200 a week, which was not bad pay for one person. And when I went to uh, the owner, Max, uh, he... He said, Peter, I don't know this group, but I'll, I'll pay you $200 a week. I said, well, I don't want to work by myself. I want to work with the group. Would you pay them 200 a week? He said, well, I can't very well turn you down, I guess. such a, It wasn't very much money even then. And uh, he gave us uh, free hamburgs. Except about a month later, he came in and saw the size of the hamburgs I was making. He says, raise that to 250 a week, but no more free hamburgs. <laughs> And uh, we stayed there for six months. Sometimes there are only ten people in the place. Uh, we'd go and sit down at a table with, with people. there no sense in us standing up at a mic. Let's have a little party. And around the month of. That, we started in January or late December. And uh, around March or April, the audiences started picking up. And. By May, we were getting big crowds, and that's when Gordon Jenkins came in and heard us and said, you guys are great. I got to record you, and and got us to Decca, and we recorded Good Night, Irene, I think about the month of June or July. June, I guess it was.
0: Was it a song that you had been doing anyhow?
1: Oh, we'd been singing it for years. Uh, Tsenna, Tsenna I think i learned two years earlier. That was, on the, uh, that was supposed to be the A side. And then the disc jockey turned over the to the B-side just to see what it was and heard this waltz. Who ever heard of a waltz becoming a uh, number one hit? But they got requests for it. Pretty soon, uh, Tenet Center gradually faded after being number one for a month. And Irene zoomed up to take its place and stayed there for four steady months.
0: Well, what was the impact on Lee and Fred, and Ronnie, yourself, uh, with with a hit record, and all of a sudden you're, you're you're stars? What was the impact of that?
1: All we could do was laugh. We, and we'd be find ourselves in a big nightclub like the Waldorf Astoria or Ciro's in Hollywood. Uh, Lee is a writer, was a writer, basically, and his slogan was, Everything is grist for the writer's mill. We'd look around and say, Grist. grist. <laughs> Lee would say, Where do you start shoveling when it's up to your neck? <laughs>
0: Uh, was there ever uh, a point where uh, you, were, you felt you were selling out, uh, that you'd lost, uh, lost your eye uh, well, to off it? It was
1: a continual
0: discussion. Uh,
1: sometimes we thought we were. Sometimes we thought we weren't. Uh, and uh, I had some pretty bitter arguments with friends I knew. Some felt we did. Uh, others felt we didn't. Uh, of course, it became an academic point about a year or two later when the blacklist did catch up with us. In 1950, though, I think the blacklisters must have looked at us in astonishment and said, how did we let those so-and-so slip through our fingers? I mean, they were aiming for big a big fish. They were going to blacklist, the Hollywood 10, Ring Lardner Jr., and so on. Uh, but uh, we were unknowns, and, and we suddenly zoomed up to notoriety, and it took them a year or two to chop us down.
0: How was the pressure? Was it insidious? Was it head-on? What, well, what, what did you feel? That kind of thing happened. Yeah,
1: In the summer of 1950, Irene was selling two million copies. It was the biggest hit record since the end of World War II, along with Bing Crosby's Sam song. And uh, we were offered a coast-to-coast network TV program uh, sponsored by Van Camp's Pork and Beans half an hour a week and uh, contract came in we signed it and the next day they were supposed to sign it but the next day an outfit uh, called Red Channels uh, came out with an attack on us as uh, commie fellow travelers and so on and uh, Van Camps never signed the contract and we got one or two more network TV shows and then no more we are on on Milton Berle's show, and Morton Downey's show, and Steve Allen's show, and then no more. And our manager uh, tried his best to get us jobs, but finally we were down singing in Daffy's Barn Grill on the outskirts of Cleveland. And it wasn't that good pay, and uh, Lee wanted to be a writer anyway, and uh, Fred wanted to uh, do some uh, go back to university and Ronnie wanted to raise a family. So I went back to teaching. I, I taught for a few years, but then I, I, some of the kids I sang for in the school and summer camp were, had started college folk song cl- camps, clubs. And I started singing in colleges and, and pretty soon the college folk music field uh, broke wide open
0: was uh, did, did you have to carry that baggage of that that blacklist uh, through your life uh, I'm I, you know through your your civilian life and your teaching and so forth during those years um,
1: well I went I taught at a little private school which didn't care but uh, if you become a political radical you know you live with the consequences You're, you uh, you have to uh, face it that sooner or later you'll lose a job or worse. I mean, some people got beaten up and killed and sent to jail, so on.
0: Has, has your ongoing activism uh, in politics uh, affected your music? I mean, do you think you might have written more songs or, or spent more time musically? Uh, what's the impact been on it? It's hard to
1: predict. Uh, had I known what I know now, 50 years ago, uh, my life might have been some different, but not completely. I'm convinced that uh, that a trying to stay away from arguments uh, isn't necessarily a good idea. I mean, people are out there uh, being killed, and if you say, oh, no, I, I want to remain neutral, it's a lot safer. Uh, I think that that's a rather immoral stance to take. Uh, so that it's—I uh, think I probably would have been involved. My father was. After I—I I, I got into this through my father. He was radicalized by World War One. His younger brother was a poet. Wrote a famous poem about World War One. I. I have a rendezvous with death at midnight in some flaming town, and I, to my pledged word, am true. I shall not fail my rendezvous. Mm. It was a famous poem in World War One. Right. Alan Seeger was his name. Well, my father wrote him and said, Alan, you're a damn fool for volunteering. He volunteered in the French Foreign Legion. He said, don't you realize the class of people that rule France are not different from the class of people that rule Germany? You should have stayed out of it. I don't expect to see you again. And he, and he didn't. But my father ended up getting fired. He was head of the music department at, at, UC, at uh, University of California at Berkeley. And uh, he uh, realized that if you were going to try and, and uh, be open about your opinions, that you probably would get fired.
0: That you're at risk somewhere, I guess. Huh?
1: On the other yeah. hand, uh, the, uh, there's, uh, you have certain wonderful advantages with uh, being open about your opinion. You're not trying to hide anything, see? And by not trying to hide anything, uh, you can you lead a much more relaxed life. You may be a little more broke, but the funny thing is I never was broke. My kids always uh, had clothes to wear, and, and uh, we lived up here in the country where we built our own cabin we lived in and didn't, and, uh, didn't owe a bank, a whole lot of mortgage. Mm-hmm.
0: It's it's one thing I wanted to ask you. Uh, you you watched uh, the Kingston Trio and Peter Paul and Mary and Bob Dylan and Joan Baez and, and Judy Collins and others make an awful lot of money. Uh, was that frustrating or nope,
1: not one bit. I'm I'm my main problem now is that in spite of my effort to remain a little bit anonymous, between TV and one thing or another, I get so much mail now that it keeps me going. I don't have oh. much free time left, because all I'm doing is answering mail. That's what I'm doing right now. Is,
0: Do you have uh, any idea how many records you've made, Pete?
1: Oh, I'm told I made like 80 or so, yeah. but I, I never counted them up.
0: Any favorites? The Wish I'll Overcome LP or anything like that?
1: No. There's some I like better than others, of course, mm-hmm. but I don't know which ones are the good ones. One of them, my best was made when I was in the U.S. Army in World War II, where I, was, I had a couple days' furlough and recorded the songs of the Abraham Lincoln Battalion, who volunteered to help the elected government of Spain try and keep Francisco Franco from taking it over. They failed, but they had some wonderful songs, and I recorded some of them in 1944, I think it was, and it's still one of the records mm. I can listen to I don't listen to records so I confess
0: have you heard uh, and and how have you reacted with uh, other people recording some of the birds doing turn and oh, uh,
1: delighted I'm very proud
0: yeah
1: even you know they, some of my songs have been done so differently than I expected it's I have to laugh like what well uh, that's a good example yeah. and uh where have all the flowers gone? I, I originally thought of it as a slow Irish air. Da da dee 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 de, dee de, 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 de. Uh, no rhythm. And uh, by the time Peter Paul and Mary and the Kingston Trio recorded it, of course, it had a uh, kind of calypso beat. And I do that. I I kind of compromise now. I sing the first verse with no rhythm, and then. Bring in the rhythm so that everybody can sing it with me.
0: Pete, uh, where has folk music gone in terms of its popularity? Well,
1: keep in mind that uh, the definition of folk music I have is somewhat different than the average person. The average person thinks folk music is something you make with a guitar and a banjo, uh, and it's uh, acoustic, not electrical. My definition is more that it's music that can be made without electricity, without a mic, without a platform, I'd say, Uh, that you can make it for yourself. And that it may be largely traditional, but uh, not all of it. For example, calypso music is is a kind of folk music. Jazz is a kind of folk music. Uh, There are folk traditions even in the fine arts field. and they're very important. My father once argued with some fellow musicians, how much of Beethoven is original Beethoven, and how much is traditional elements that he inherited? They thought at first it might be 50-50. After all, the instruments of the orchestra came to him. Uh, the major and minor scales came to him. And so on. They ended up deciding, a, a Beethoven symphony was 10% Beethoven and 90% uh, elements that he had inherited, whether you call it tradition or what, whatever. This is along the line of what uh, Isaac Newton said when the fellow who discovered the law of gravity, they said, people who have praised me should realize that I'm but a dwarf standing on the shoulders of giants.
0: <laughs> How about, uh, obviously, folk music, as you say.
1: I, mean, I, I didn't quote him right. No, what, what
0: is it? What was yeah. it?
1: People who have praised me should realize that if I can see farther than most, it's because I stand I mean, on the shoulders of giants.
0: <laughs> How about music, though, addressing uh, social causes? Uh, and oh, that seems to fit. I've talking about uh, history. Yeah. But what, what in the last 15, 16 uh, but, years? You
1: know, d- take the long view. Um, right. As soon as people stopped living the life of a hunting and gathering tribe like the American Indians, this is the way all people lived, once upon a time, 10,000 years ago. Uh, as soon as they quit that uh, and became farmers, then you had class society. Before that, it was everybody lived the life of a communist. If there was food, everybody ate. If there was hunger, everybody went hungry. Uh, and then some clever people discovered agriculture. And now some people got rich and others stayed poor. And uh, on an ancient Egyptian tomb is a song, the lyrics of a song at least, a man complaining about the high taxes. A farmer, a rice uh, farmer, uh, complaining that they, they take too big a bite. And the uh, Bible is full of people railing against the the selfishness of rich people. Weep and wail, ye rich men! Ye have stored up fire for the, your last days. Ye have withheld the pay from the labourers in your fields. Should they not resist? So, uh, the idea of protest songs is dates back thousands of years, and all we're doing is just carrying on an old tradition.
0: And and it did reached uh, a, a level of popularity obviously in the 60s and 70s that uh, well, it, it made a breakthrough yeah. TV
1: but it's still going on you just right. don't hear it on TV
0: and it's all over and what do you feel when you're out there uh, what what do they want to hear what do people in this country want to hear now is, is it do they want to hear songs about apartheid do they want to hear music about homeless or hunger or things like that
1: no one no one wants to be beat over the head right. But if you've got a new slant on something, they'd be interested. And Tom Paxton is always coming through with a new song with a new slant on something. I am changing my name to Chrysler. I'm going down to Washington, (laughs) DC.
0: How about your writing? Are you still active with that?
1: I wish I could say I, I was, but I'm a very slow songwriter. I'm lucky if I get one song written every year or two. Most of my songwriting has been here along the Hudson River, and I've written a few songs which the other Clearwater people sing.
0: How, how did the song like, uh, First Time Ever I Saw Your Face come along? That's really a love song. Well,
1: my brother-in-law wrote that, you know. Oh, uh,
0: uh-huh.
1: He married my sister about 30 years ago, like.
0: Oh, that's you and McCall. That's yeah. right. Yeah, yeah, that's right, yeah.
1: And uh, he believes strongly in everybody trying to write songs. And uh, he believes strongly, as Woody Guthrie did, that you don't have to claim to be so original. You can take over an old song and, and adapt it, put new words to an old melody, or try a slightly different melody to some older words. But he wrote a love song and, and sang it occasionally for his concerts. I don't, about two or three years later, he and my sister recorded it as a duo if anybody had told him that it would become a best-selling hit, hit he would have just laughed at them.
0: If, if you had to take a, a period of time of a few years and put it in the bottle up on the shelf and look at it in 20 years and say that was the best, is there any one period that sticks out for you? Was it the Weaver's time? Was it Woody? Was it now? What when, when would it well, be? Well, of
1: course, now is the best time. It's right. the most exciting time I've ever lived in. I'm glad to be alive, feel very lucky. On the other hand, if I considered my whole long life, probably the 50s was the most important job I ever did. When I served, after the Weavers were blacklisted, and I went from college to college to college, telling young people that there was once a guy named Leadbelly and once a guy named Woody Guthrie, and they made some great music. And the other people could pick up where they left off.
0: And and you felt that that, that preserved the line?
1: Well, I sung in Palo Alto once for the uh, local Democratic club. And a college student there writes me a letter and asks for a copy of my banjo book, mimeographed, dollar fifty-nine. I sold 100 copies in four years. A year later, he writes, dear Pete, we've been putting that banjo book to good use. I and two others have a group we call the Kingston Trio. And the twelve year old girl was also at that same concert I gave at in a Palo Alto Junior High School. Uh, and she went back and looked in the mirror and and uh, made faces at herself and pretended she was on a stage, you know. I'd never thought about it but I think I could be on a stage too and sing, and her name was Joan Baez.
0: Oh gosh. Well, that's got to give you—I uh, mean—such me a, a sense of satisfaction. Uh, it and,
1: does great sense of
0: satisfaction. And and you must realize, whatever self-effacement you want, that when you walk out there, there is just—I uh, mean—it's the U.S. Constitution that's coming out there. It's not just another entertainer. I, uh, yeah, that's right.
1: I would i would be in jail if it wasn't for the U.S. Constitution.
0: Right. Well, uh,
1: great—a uh, great First Ten Amendments, especially. And, and, Incidentally, give yes. thanks to the Scandinavians. Uh, I've decided that that the average person doesn't realize the Scandinavian element in in the uh, what we think of as our Anglo-Saxon tradition. And those Scandinavians had an ancient love of democracy, and that's what they put into the Magna Carta, and and it was extended to to uh, the middle classes in the 16th and 17th century, and Jefferson put it, put them in the uh, Bill of Rights.
0: God, if you ever get this word out, they'll have a slogan about take a Swedish man to lunch or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> take a Viking to lunch. Take a Viking to lunch. Yeah. Pete, I thank you for your time. This is some good stuff. I really appreciate it. And I'll have a copy of the book to you when we get it out. Thank you. Thank you, Pete. Bye-bye Bye. now.